From DLA Piper, this is the Beyond the Curve podcast. In this episode, Fenimore Fisher, DLA Piper's Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer, is joined by Kenji Yoshino, Director of the Center for Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging at NYU School of Law, to discuss what it means to be an ally during this time of racial, economic, and social crisis. Hello, everyone. My name is Fenimore Fisher, and I serve as the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer for DLA Piper. It's my honor to be chatting today with Kinji Yoshino. Kinji is the Chief Justice Earl Warren Professor of Constitutional Law at the NYU School of Law. He also serves as the Director of the Center for Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging. And he's the author of a book that I have been rereading these days entitled Covering the Hidden Assault on Our Civil Rights. Kenji, it's great to be with you. Shall we get to it? Let's do it. Let me first say that it's such a honor on my part to be talking to you, Fenimore. I think you're more unique than rare, as I mentioned to you in an earlier email, for having both a really strong background with DNI issues in academia and in the for-profit sector. So I really look forward to learning from you, as I always do in this conversation. Absolutely. Let's talk about the origins for the center. Why was it established by NYU? What do you see as the primary purpose today as well as in the future? Yeah, so thank you for that. It's a great place to begin because I think that in this moment where diversity and inclusion issues seem to be exploding on the national and indeed international landscape, we feel quite prescient for having created the center in 2016. And the way that it came about was that I had written this book that you mentioned covering and was doing a lot of speaking and consulting around it. And then at the same time, the wonderful dean of my law school, Trevor Morrison, had just completed a strategic plan survey to figure out what the priorities of the law school should be for the next five years. And It's actually a sign of where we are today that even then, when he was engaged in this study, one of the top three priorities was diversity and inclusion. So he came to me and he said, Kenji, I know you're feeling overwhelmed by the amount of stuff that you're being asked to do here. We can help with that and give you more administrative support and a platform and fellows and students who are interested in working with you. And we actually think that this is a way to burnish the law school's own brand and more importantly, to drive its priorities with regard to diversity and inclusion. So I just say the first person who came to speak at our center was Justice Sonia Sotomayor. And it was literally just a few days after the 2016 election. And Mm. it was really like a against all odds story in both directions. I think many people were surprised that President Trump won. And then when Sotomayor came, she was an against-all-odds story in the other direction, a staunch Democrat and progressive who had grown up in the projects and then found her way to the Supreme Court. And it's fascinating to think about that opening session for the center because she literally walked among the students and they were reaching out to touch the hem of our garment, like the old videos of Gandhi (laughs) that you see, because she represented so much hope for them in that moment. So we've had a really good run. We've been incredibly fortunate over the past four years, and we'll be celebrating our fifth year anniversary next year. In terms of what we try to do, we like to think of our work as occurring under three rubrics or occurring in three buckets. And the first one is 
driving interdisciplinary research, both doing our own and pushing out the practical and helpful research of others into the world. And so as an academic institute, we view that to be one of our core missions. And the second one, going back to the conversation my dean and I had, was to help the law school live up to its own ideals of inclusion. As you know from your own experience with organizations, oftentimes organizations live under ideals rather than up to them. And we were really trying to close that gap to help the law school live its stated ideals of diversity and inclusion. And we can talk about specifics if it's helpful. And then the third bucket was really looking externally in a very practical way. And we've engaged in this wonderful journey with DLA Piper, as we can talk about later on in this conversation, but also with other Fortune 500 organizations and with nonprofits in order to help them drive their diversity and inclusion initiatives in a thoughtful, research-backed way. Thank you, Kenji. I want to follow up to at least one of the key points that you made as you brought us through the history of the center. Speaking of the 2016 election, candidly, historically, the majority of our presidential elections have caused deep partisan divides in our country. Do you believe that we have lost as a nation our ability to simply engage in civil discourse? If so, how do we course correct that? Yeah, so let me say, given that we have such a friendly relationship, Fenimore, I'm just going to shoot from the hip and say my posture is often one of despair. So on my bad days, I think we've become way too polarized as a nation. I'm actually going to put my faith elsewhere. But then I hope that I can loop back to a more hopeful place where I am on my better and more resilient days. But oftentimes my reaction is I give up on these discussions in the nation as a whole. And where I withdraw to is organizations where I think there's an incredible amount of hope. So I actually am much more confident that I can bridge ideological divides if I'm working at DLA or if I'm working at my own law school or if I'm working at any organization where You've built up enough cultural capital and trust among the individuals such that there are common projects other than diversity and inclusion that bind people together, that have people rubbing elbows with each other, that have people doing favors for each other, such that you have those deep bonds. There's social science to support this, right? Robert Putnam up at Harvard is a political scientist who talks about bonding capital and bridging capital. And he says we need both. Bonding glue is a super glue that binds groups together. Bridging capital is what allows you to glide across groups, the WD-40, if you will, that allows you to glide across groups that are not like your own. And the reason I think organizations present such a hopeful case is that they have both bonding and bridging capital. Bonding capital is pretty natural, like, likes, like. We all gravitate towards people who are like ourselves. And we have that even at the national level. I think what organizations have that we don't have at the national level is this bridging capital of feeling like we can actually reach across to people who are very different from us and collaborate with them on projects. So at the law school, I constantly have to serve on committees. I'm co-teaching with people. I'm in faculty workshops with people who don't share my views. And that iterative process of collaboration allows us to create these bonds so that the only time we're talking to each other is not when somebody's ox is getting gored or when we're having a very high temperature conversation about diversity and inclusion issues. I think that's what we don't have at the national level. So if I pivot now back to the national level where we started, 
and I try to speak in a more hopeful vein, I think the national level can learn something from organizations, which is to say that organizations thrive because they not only have bonding capital, they have bridging capital. At the national level, we have plenty of bonding capital. Everyone is actually super glued to their own partisan beliefs, for example, with increasing polarization, that clumping together is going to be correspondingly severe. And what we really need now is the bridging capital, the common projects, the common aims. So whether that's articulating a national ethos of this is who we are as Americans or engaging in a common project, at a time, it seemed like the pandemic would do this. of saying we are all against right. this virus, obviously, and so let's stand shoulder to shoulder and transcend partisan divides. So on my good days, I think that we will be able to restore that sense of national unity and that sense of bridging capital so that when our differences really do arise and we should have frank conversations about those differences, there'll be conversations not to devolve into cliche where we can disagree agreeably. That is extremely helpful. Kinji, I also have my challenging days, but I also am driven by the same focus on hope. And really, I'd like for you to talk a bit more about the aspect of bridging capital. Absolutely, every time I talk to you, I learn something new. But I want you to talk about this bridging capital concept in relationship to allyship, because there's a tremendous amount of discussion and dialogue about allyship. So with this global outcry that we have for racial equality and social justice, we are bound to see and are seeing a significant carryover into the workplace. How should employers engage leaders as well as individual contributors to serve as allies. And what does it even mean when we're discussing social justice and we're discussing the impacts of systemic racism on marginalized communities? And certainly the discussion is centered heavily around the African-American community based upon the recent and historic senseless deaths. Just could you give us some context there about allyship? Is that something that is a part of bridging capital? I think allyship is almost the embodiment of bridging capital, at least as we envision it at the center, because we really believe that allyship is a word that is bandied about really freely, as you've mentioned, but admits of many definitions. And the definition that we land on is what we call being an ally to all, that it is this dynamic through which an individual uses their power or their privilege and support of others. And the ally to all notion really derives from the researcher Keith Edwards's really useful three-part model, where it's a maturity curve from being an ally to one to being an ally to some to being an ally to all. So being an ally to one is like one of your protégés and you just want to get me through the promotion process. You don't see in-groups or out-groups. You just want to help your guy get through. Once I either get through or don't get through, your work is done and you don't really think about it as being engaged in systems. So that's certainly better than being an ally to none, but it is still at the very, very beginning of the allyship maturity curve. One step above that is where you start to see the bridging capital that we were talking about. Because when you're an ally to some, you no longer think about people as individuals. You start thinking about people as members of a group. So you see in-groups and out-groups. So 
you say, I'm going to sponsor this individual, not only because she's my protege, but also because I understand that she's a woman and that women face different challenges than men do in the workplace. And so you're thinking in group-based terms and you're thinking about unconscious bias, you're thinking about stereotype threat, you're thinking about the canons of diversity and inclusion literature. I always laugh because I see people pivoting in their minds from ally to one to ally to some when they make comments like, as somebody who has a daughter, I believe in women's equality. So Mitch McConnell, I think, said, as someone with three daughters, I strongly object to the president's comments when the president made his Access Hollywood comments. And you can expand on that. Some comedian said, as a father of 25 daughters, I finally think that women should be treated like human beings. So we'll take it, right? However you get there, you want to make the pivot from being an ally to one, the individual that you care about, to an ally to the group as a whole. But even that, Fenimore, is not where we want people to end. Where we want people to grow to is really this notion of ally to all. And I think that's where bridging capital really finds its fullest expression. So when you're an ally to all, it really means that you are willing to be an ally to anyone, regardless of their demographic characteristics. And that actually includes yourself, so that you actually expect to be the beneficiary of a strong allyship culture. So I'm fond of saying even the most privileged, cisgender, straight white guy is at some point going to lose his age privilege, his health privilege, his status privilege. He's going to lose his subject matter expertise privilege or so on and so forth. And he's going to be really happy in that juncture that he's built a culture that's rich in allies. So I think that that's where we want people ultimately to arrive. Where that plays out in our current historical moment of thinking about Black Lives Matter and the race relations within organizations is, first of all, I think you make a really critical point that there are these spillover effects. This is now Bell Reagan's work where she says things that happen in the outside world do actually manifest in the workplace. We like to pretend right. that there's some kind of acoustic separation between the world out there and our workplace, I think sometimes we're willing to say, oh, yeah, there are these spillover effects, like in the work-life balance context, we're willing to acknowledge that workers have a life outside of the occupational context. But those exceptions are few and far between. So what you're pointing out that's really important is that allyship is not just something that we express by going out and protesting in the streets. It's also manifested in how much we step up to stand shoulder to shoulder with our African-American colleagues in this particular time, because you can bet that the trauma of these murders is going to hit those colleagues as a general matter more than it's going to hit as a general matter people of other cohorts. One of my favorite DNI practitioners once said, when someone said, why are we having so many town halls on race? We make semiconductor chips. This is not what we do for a living. We're not race relations experts. So why do we have to talk about this? And her response was very calm and very cool. And she said, how much work did you get done on the day after 9-11? And the answer obviously was none. So she was saying, I'm just universalizing the experience of this particular group. And so for African-Americans, this is like one 9-11 after another. Every time we read about another George Floyd or going all the way back to Trayvon Martin and then earlier and earlier for that, it's really 400 years of this. So I think that that's a really useful reminder that things in the outside world do not stay outside. They spill over because we're human beings and we don't leave all of that at the turnstile when we walk through security at our workplace. And so speaking more tangibly about how leaders can be allies to African-Americans and their organizations, 
And one question that we often get asked is, okay, kind of cool model. This is great. Ally to one, ally to some, ally to all, all for it. We can talk more about the details of that if you want. But the million dollar question, what at least I am old enough to think of as the $64,000 question from an old timey game show, which most millennial listeners will never have heard of. But what I think of as a $64,000 question is, how do you get from one stage to the other? And the way we do it, which I think is the most direct answer to your question, is through what we call the empathy triangle. So imagine Mm -hmm. a triangle, there's the ally, there's the affected person, and there's the source of the non-inclusive behavior. So in that situation, it's either I saw it, it happened to me, or I did it. And so how do we actually, as an ally, engage with people in this triangle? So for leaders dealing with their, for example, African-American colleagues in this time of Black Lives Matter, you need to ask yourself a set of questions pertaining to each vertex of that triangle. So first, with regard to yourself as an ally, the questions you have to ask yourself are things like, what are my motivations for acting? Am I trying to be a savior here? Am I trying to get cookies, get approbation? Am I trying to virtue signal? If so, then I might want to rethink whether or not I should be doing this at all, because the spotlight is always going to be on me rather than on the person I am seeking to help, and I could do more harm than good. Second, am I informed enough to act? Do I know enough about the history of racial justice? Have I delved into some of the anti-racist reading lists that are making the rounds so that I actually am not on training wheels when I enter this conversation? But also, and I think really importantly, more, am I informed enough to act about a particular scenario that's unfolding in my workplace. Too often, I think we jump in when we think that we see racism without actually exploring it. Or too often, we dismiss allegations about racism as not being real without actually sitting down and saying, do I have all the facts? Am I informed enough to act in this context? And then finally, am I behaving in a systemic way? Am I intervening in a way that's not individual, but systemic? So rather than saying, I'm just going to fix this one particular thing, thinking about what you can do to improve the system as a whole. So rather than going and comforting the African-American colleague, saying to the organization, are we going to change our hiring goals for African-American employees? Have we donated to the LDF or the NAACP or to the Equal Justice Initiative or any other organization that's doing anti-racist work? Is there something that we can do that would affect more of the systemic issues that are in play? Because this is not about individual racists. This is a systems-level problem and requires a systems-level response. I'll go over the other two really quickly because I realize this is like the frozen centuries of time answer to a very succinct question. But with regard to the affected person, the main question I want people to ask as leaders is, am I helping this person in your prompt, the Black colleague, am I helping this Black colleague as he or she wishes to be helped rather than as I wish to help them? So I think too often as allies, we help people as we deem fit to help them rather than taking the extra step of sitting down with them and saying, can I be helpful in this circumstance? And if so, how? They may reject you as an ally. They may say, no, I got this. I'm fine. But you still accomplish some work because you've outed yourself as an ally who cares about the work and who's invested enough in them to reach out to them. So they've banked you for a future occasion in which they may really need to pick up the phone and ask for your help. If they say yes, then you can actually strategize together about how to go forward. But too often in working with organizations, I've heard some version of the, oh, a Black colleague was being subjected to a microaggression in a meeting. So it was repeatedly interrupted or 
was talked over or was given a menial role like note taking rather than a seat at the table. And then so I stood up as an ally and I spoke up and I said, I'm sure this individual doesn't appreciate being treated that way. And then later on, if you actually talk to the affected Black individual, the Black individual is like, I wish that hadn't happened because I had this. I actually knew exactly what to do. And so this person actually thought they knew better than I did and rushed in where angels fear to tread. And also, I kind of just wanted to get through my agenda for that day. And I didn't need this whole meeting sidetracked by a diversity and inclusion conversation. Now, of course, sometimes there are times when the racism is so egregious that you have to act. But when you do that, allies, please intervene on your own behalf. Say, as someone who's invested in an anti-racist, inclusive culture, I object to what happened rather than putting words in somebody else's mouth or acting as if you're behaving in a particular way at somebody else's behest. And then finally, and most controversially, you have to be an ally to the source of non-inclusive behavior. And this boy, Fenimore, like gets people's hackles up. People get really riled up when I say this because they're like, why on earth should I have to be an ally to the woman in Central Park who calls the police on an African-American individual who's just birdwatching, for goodness sake. And going back to my earlier answer about my hope for organizations and my despair about our national landscape, I'm actually not saying that you need to be an ally to that woman in Central Park, but I am saying you need to be an ally to the source of non-inclusive behavior within your organization who's defending that woman. And you need to be able to take them aside and have the conversation with them about why you think that that is not the right position. Because if you don't do that, then that person either goes on his merry way or her merry way thinking that nothing is wrong, or alternatively gets ostracized or shunned by the rest of the organization and gets bitter and kind of doubles down on their position. I still get pushback even when I modify it by saying this is a point of departure, not a point of conclusion. But if the person is a recidivist and keeps engaging in racist behavior, you can escalate and ultimately detach from that person. But it's a point of departure to show that person the respect. But the thing that always lands the plane when I get resistance is the following point, and I'll end here. This is a game of musical chairs. You do not, as a leader, have the luxury of simply sitting in the ally position all the time. Sometimes you will be the affected person, and sometimes, and it's a question of when, not whether, you yourself will be the source of non-inclusive behavior. So when you are the source of non-inclusive behavior, imagine if something comes out of your mouth, as has happened to me, and we can go into all the embarrassing details if you want. I've done this myself routinely. I am really glad when I happen to say the wrong thing that I've built a culture rich in allies around me, because then people will say, this is a bad thing that Kenji did. Kenji is not necessarily a bad person. We can engage with him and engage in a growth mindset and help him grow past that. Well, I also thank you for that. I have a host of embarrassing details, but let's see if we get invited back and we can have some additional time to share. But (laughs) (laughs) I have one final question, and it's a follow-up. Kenji, as you know, I started my career in civil rights working for the Rainbow Push Coalition. And one thing that was just pounded into my consciousness is the fact that Society doesn't change when just people change. Society changes when both people and the law change. And Mm. as we know, and it's well-researched, that African Americans have been at the forefront of fighting for equality in this country, but have not been the 
immediate benefactors of those efforts. How do you build in this moment, which we've got to transition and turn into a movement, how do you build trust with that backdrop through allyship models? Yeah, I think that's such a great place for us to end because I do think that it's really important that allied at all not turn into all lives matter or this kumbaya of we all just need to learn to get along and all of our pain as equivalent. And other research that I've done, I talk about covering and the degree to which people need to edit or downplay outsider attributes. And I think it's really instructive that on the one hand, everybody covers so that no cohort is immune from the covering demand. But on the other Mm -hmm. hand, the incidence of covering is really much, much higher among some cohorts other than others. So that the percentage of straight white men who reported covering was 45%. The percentage of African-Americans who reported covering needing to mute or downplay or modulate their identity to fit in at the workplace was 79%. So it's a really drastic differential. So what I like to say is no cohort is immune from covering. Everyone pays this tax, but the tax is not levied evenly across people. And so I think that we need to carry the same insight over to the allyship context where The notion is we do want people to be allies to all so that we do want this to be a general posture of sticking up for people and sticking up for each other and allowing oneself to be stood up for when one needs it. But let's not labor under any illusion that everyone is going to need allies to the same extent. I often get criticized for inviting a kind of pain Olympics of whose pain is greater than who else's pain. Mm -hmm. But I often get accused of partaking too much in the pain Olympics of measuring one person's pain over another. But I think at the end of the day, we just do need to be able to say that, which is to say, I as a gay man, as an Asian American man, have suffered many things in my life based on those demographic characteristics. But in the aggregate, this is not the same as the suffering that my African-American colleagues have endured, again, as a general matter. And we have to, at some level, be able to prioritize, as we would in any other analytic enterprise, to say, some people have just suffered more than others. And so what that means in the allyship context is to say, as an Asian-American, oftentimes the notion is, maybe this is not my time to speak. Maybe this is a time for me to be an ally and to elevate my African-American colleagues to listen, to read more, to reflect more. And that's the only way in which an African-American colleague could possibly begin to trust me as somebody who is in a community that has, unfortunately, not a great track record about being an ally to the African-American community in many respects. So I need to actually prioritize what needs to be prioritized in this moment. And I need to educate myself. And then I need to make gestures that are both affirmative in the sense of showing people that I'm doing the work and that I'm trying to educate myself and others about these issues. But I also need to do the work that seems so passive, but which is just as important, which is a really important work of listening, of saying, this is actually not a time for me to speak. It's actually a time for me to listen. And if I can land the plane on that. I was recently at a board meeting and I was told to check my privilege. And I had a really kind of unpraiseworthy reaction to that, Fenimore, because my reaction was, it was an African-American woman who was challenging me on this. And my initial reaction was, you're casting me as like, all lights have turned green for me all my life. 
I actually grew up as a gay kid, believing that I would never get married, believing that I would never have kids, believing that I would go to hell. So did you grow up with that? But given actually some of the work that you and I have done together, I checked myself because we all know in the allyship literature, and I recommend Dolly Chug's wonderful book, The Person You Want to Be. She talks about the hard knock life effect. And the hard knock life effect is that the social science tells us that whenever we're called out on our privilege, our immediate go-to place is to talk about what a hard knock life we have had. And so we don't actually hear what the person is saying. And what my wonderful African-American colleague was saying to me was not, you're a privilege in every aspect of your life, but rather on this particular issue of racism against African-Americans that we are talking about today, you are privileged. You have not had to worry about your kids getting shot. You have not had to worry about all the microaggressions that you're going to have to experience. You don't have to worry about speaking up about this and having people retaliate against you because you've triggered some white fragility in them or some Asian fragility in them. So I realized that this is really a moment where I just needed to sit in my own discomfort and eat it and to say, look, this is a moment of incredible fragility for me. I'm having the hard knock life response. I really need to approach this both empathetically and analytically and understand that what she is saying is not what I'm reacting to. If I were truly to listen, I would understand that what she is saying is not you are privileged in every dimension, but rather you are privileged in this dimension, and you need to listen as I explain to you how you are privileged in that dimension. And I think we all need to do a little bit more of that. Absolutely. Thank you, Kenji, for all that you do. Let's keep hope alive together. Let's keep talking, Fenimore. I know we will, (laughs) and I cherish that. Thank you for listening to DLA Piper's Beyond the Curve podcast. This podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship between the firm and listener. All information, content, and materials discussed are for general informational purposes only. No listener should act or refrain from acting with respect to any particular legal matter on the basis of this information without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Views expressed by guests are their own.